Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Grow Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over £50 million worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this evening's podcast. There's tons of you on so far, and I'm super excited tonight. I've got a great guest that's going to be sharing some brilliant stories and experiences with me this evening, and he's had some so many accolades tonight. I think the uh, the introduction's going to be probably a bit could be a bit long, but he's been named as Fortune Magazine's top fifty worldwide leaders, which is an incredible accolade. Uh, something that he's told me behind the scenes that his mum's really proud of, which is awesome. And in addition to that, he's gone out and built a business, which we're going to talk about tonight, which is the Unreasonable Group, which has achieved some incredible things, some really, really big numbers, and been able to raise over 5.2 billion, that's billion, not million pound, in financing for companies. So if you're a business owner this evening and you're watching and you're looking to get more information on investment or you're an investor that's watching you want to understand more about that this is going to be awesome for you tonight um he's also generated over 3.2 billion yes billion again in revenue across the companies that he's been a part of and that he's invested in so he's got some awesome lessons this evening now uh, before i bring daniel in which he's here with us this evening all the way from colorado I'm just going to say to you tonight that you've got a great opportunity to jump in here and pick the brains of somebody that's been through some incredible uh, uh, journey in his businesses and uh, make sure that you're engaging tonight. Say hello to Daniel in the comments. Tell us what business you're in. Share this video with somebody that's interested in business, finance, and investing. And uh, I'm really looking forward to a great interview with Daniel tonight. So, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for joining us all the way from Colorado. How are we doing, buddy? Doing very well. Thanks for having me and you know, for everybody tuning in. Thanks for lending us your ears and your eyes and your hearts and your minds, hopefully, for the next little bit here. But excited to dig in. And your introduction was I'm too kind. I would just say don't believe any of the headlines. Uh, but tonight we could dig into the real story. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I mean, do you want to start off with just giving us a bit of an understanding of Unreasonable Group. It's certainly an interesting name. There's a bit of a story behind that and uh, a little bit about the business and a little bit about your background. That'd be awesome if you could share that with us just to kick off tonight. Yeah, happy to. Happy to. Uh, yeah, I think it's a good place to start, which is to do you know everybody who's listening into this a favor, which is rationalize a seemingly irrational name. You know, why do I work with an organization called the Unreasonable Group? It's inspired by the Irish playwright, George Bernard Shaw, um, is where our name come from. He has a lot of brilliant quotes, but the one we latched on to is when he said that the reasonable man adapts himself to the world, the unreasonable one persists in adapting the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable person. And if George Bernard Shaw is right, if all progress depends on unreasonable individuals, then we can't afford not to bet 
on the world's most unreasonable people. And, and we believe that those are hands down entrepreneurs, right? Because as, as entrepreneurs, right? And, and you know this, Adam, but we, we have a curiously warped perspective, right? Where most of the world sees market failures, we see market opportunities. Uh, and I think that that's exactly the type of thinking that we need in a world that has so many challenges and so many issues. And that, you know, the truth is, is we can't solve them fast enough. I am, and so we're in the business of supporting entrepreneurs who are positioned to profitably solve some of the world's greatest challenges, whether that's looking at the future of healthcare, uh, energy, food, education, you know, whatever that might be. And we, we try to give these entrepreneurs an unfair advantage. And so, yeah, as, as you mentioned, we support just about uh, 250 CEOs as part of the Unreasonable Fellowship. And, you know, they've raised over $5 billion, generated more than $4 billion in revenue. I think much more important for us, though, they're, they're impacting the lives in a measurable way of over 530 million people around the world. Uh, so happy to dig into some of their stories. And there's tons of lessons, you know, learned along the route. But, you know, my own path. I really came out of philosophy. Uh, my yeah, university, so. right, studying business and dropped out to study philosophy. And it helped me question everything that was around me. And it, it gave me this healthy disregard for the status quo and, you know, the desire to reimagine it with, with what we're doing at a reasonable. Well, you know, I, I love that. And, and I saw that on philosophy. And I think that that's something that a lot of businesses don't necessarily understand what is their philosophy about the way they want to run their business, about the way they want to grow their business. You've kind of said that in the name, you know, there's some philosophy behind the name in the entrepreneurs are successful usually for a reason. And that is because they are unreasonable in what they do. I think that's awesome. So how's that philosophy background helped you to, I mean, I I really want to dig into the story because a lot of what we're going to talk about today is there's people who are watching tonight that might be looking to make their first six figure business, right? Which is hundreds of thousands. There might be people watching tonight that are well over that and they're trying to get to their seven figures and there'll be some for eight, you know, but being nine, building nine figure investments and stuff is huge. And people, a lot of people want business to be a magic wand. They want things to go quickly. (laughs) Quickly, it doesn't happen that way, right? Never. Building up. So I'm really interested as somebody that's operating in that, in the B column and getting to understand how does somebody that's watching tonight go and grow and build almost beyond their imagination but we'll come to that in a minute why don't we start with how philosophy impacts the business being that that's what you majored in that's what you studied how have you brought that into what you do i've been really interested to hear a bit about that tonight yeah, I mean, it's it's really the genesis of unreasonable. I am, and you know, this is so. When I was going to university, I was out here in Colorado. I am, and I started out studying math, finance, and econ. And I am, would go around, and people would ask you what you want to, you know, be when you grow up. In essence, everybody asks you when you start in uni, and I, I would tell them, I said, I want to be an entrepreneur. And the response would be, "Oh, that's so cool! Like, what? What's your idea? What's your company?" And and I had none. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, remarkably kind of odd time. I felt a little bit like a charlatan, and I would, you know, spend evenings with my journal, writing out all these business plans, and nothing was sticking. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, and I realized in hindsight it was the wrong question, right? Because there was one night I just dropped the other degrees and started studying philosophy. So I'm still 18 right before the end of my first semester. And uh, I'm writing in my journal and I decided, you know, these, none of these business ideas are really sticking for me. So let me put on my philosopher's hat and ask myself, so what do all entrepreneurs have in common? And I wrote in my journal on one line, I said, all entrepreneurs design solutions to problems. That's or on the next line, well, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. And I wrote on the last line, therefore, I'm only going to work on problem sets worthy of my life's work. 
the only thing I knew about entrepreneurship is kind of what you were just mentioning, which is it's remarkably hard. It's a hard <laughs> journey, right? And you know, in in the states, in the U.S., uh, nine out of ten companies still don't exist five years after found after being yeah. founded. Similar stats over in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it was it was that kind of philosophical realization that if I'm going to start a business, the odds are stacked against me. And so if I'm going to leverage my time, my equity, my sleep, my reputation into creating a company, why not work on a company that if we succeed, we bend history in the right direction um, because of the nature of the problems that we went out to solve. Uh, and so you know, for me, I'm, an unreasonable came out of I trying to be a young entrepreneur, launching companies that were looking at profitably solving these pressing societal challenges and, and finding that to be extremely hard. And, you know, I felt like a misfit between two worlds, right? You have the, the public sector and the private sector. In the public sector, I cared about solving the same problems, right? Whether that's you know, food access or quality education, renewable energy. And I'd go over there and I'd hang out and I realized I'm a total misfit because it, I believe that profits are best driver for ingenuity and markets for scale. So I'm a capitalist, right? And so I, I, I you know, love working with the nonprofit sector, but I felt like a misfit there. And I went to the private sector thinking, well, these are my people, you know, they get that. And I realized I'm a misfit there too, because, you know, although I believe profit is a remarkably powerful tool, that's how I see it, right? A hammer can be used to build a house or tear down a home, you know, whichever you prefer. And I think that capitalism is the most powerful tool in our tool belt. But for me, the, you know, the reason to get into for-profit businesses isn't profit. It's to drive, you know, lasting change at scale. And so th that was really the genesis of a reasonable was kind of feeling lonely, like a misfit entrepreneur and wanted to seek refuge amongst other entrepreneurs. Just a recap, yeah. you know, Daniel was saying there about profit being a, a real tool for being able to use that tool for good. So Daniel, philosophy, and do you know what yeah. was really cool, what you were saying there is I would be willing to bet and the audience, you can tell me if you're right, pop it in the comments. But a lot of people have felt like that. You said that I felt like a charlatan, you know, I felt yeah. that I, I didn't <laughs> completely I wasn't sure where I fit, you know, and yeah. I remember like, my first businesses, it was the same. You know, mm -hmm. I had aspirations that were outside my social group. I had aspirations yeah. and, you know, being somewhere else, but I didn't quite fit there either. And sometimes it's quite difficult to yeah. find your place. So why don't we talk about how you did find your place and then how you went to start Unreasonable Group and how that impacted what happened moving forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Uh, so, so for me, Unreasonable was not designed to be a company. It was quite literally, it was a selfish endeavor, right? I felt like this misfit entrepreneur, like I would say, wanted to seek refuge amongst other misfit entrepreneurs, i.e. individuals who were let's say, foolhardy enough to believe they could, you know, quote, unquote, change the world, but so hell-bent and so determined they wouldn't stop until they did. And I just didn't have that community of entrepreneurs thinking about solving problems at global scale. And so if it had existed, I would have applied for it and, you know, somehow <laughs> snuck in or something. But that community didn't exist at the time. And so I had to build it just to be a part of it. Teamed up with a couple friends and we kind of went after it. What was interesting was... Um, Unreasonable was not intended to be the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It felt, uh, the truth is, it felt too meta, right? You know, we're in the business of helping entrepreneurs on the front lines, 
but we're not actually the entrepreneurs on the front lines ourselves. Yeah. And it took, it took me a couple of years to actually swallow my ego because I was running, when we launched in Reasonable, I was running two other startups at the same time. And I believe like I'm going to be the company solving the problems on the front lines. This is a reasonable thing. It's really about community. And, and what happened is I got addicted to leverage, right? Yeah, I, and, and not, not necessarily financial leverage. I just realized, right, mm-hmm. I can start one or two or three companies and if I'm really lucky in my lifetime, maybe those will impact, you know, tens of millions of lives. Um, or we could be in the business of being the most effective organization in the world at helping those who are already doing it, right? And that's really what we do. We help entrepreneurs at a growth state and development scale what's working. You know, you might be bringing clean drinking water to 2 million people. It's profitable. Our question is, how do we take it to 200 million people faster? Yeah, that was kind of when it all turned. And it took me, once again, it took me a few years to like swallow, swallow my pride and realize that actually there's entrepreneurs who are more qualified than I am, you know, out there going after these tough challenges, but that there was a huge opportunity you know, to bring them together and coalesce a community of support and capital, you know, help them do what they're already doing better. So that was really interesting is, is probably the last, uh, and I'm noticing a trend. Yeah. Okay? I'm noticing a big trend at the moment. Something that I've always believed in, which is, building the right culture um, and community. But where I'm seeing people that are having a tremendous amount of success at the moment is in building these types of communities where people come together and they work together. Now, the typical way of a business owner or an entrepreneur, like the, the typical, like, looking at an entrepreneur or a business owner is, you know, the way it's been painted in the past is you've got this person that is ruthless, this person that's kind of arrogant and, <laughs> Totally. Doesn't say no for an answer yeah. and blasts his way to success with yeah. and blasts everything else out of the way. You know, the one thing I've learned without a shadow of a doubt, and yeah. especially since we're running big business events and I've been in working in the coaching and the speaking world, yeah. is actually how much you more you can be stronger together. Oh, I work really? with the same goals. And from, from the interviews that I've been in recently, yeah. you know, yourself and a, a couple of the others, community's been one of the topics. Yeah. You know, so could you tell us a bit about community and how that community is flourished? Yeah. Like what is the unexpected side benefit of you yeah. building a community rather than building a business? Like how did that, how did that, get that. you know, I'd be interested yeah. to know. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And then just to comment on it, uh, one of our partners is Accenture and heading up their uh, branch of their innovation team is a, is a guy named Ryan Shanks. And how he put it was beautiful. He said, we always talk about competitive advantage in business. He said, what about collaborative advantage? Yeah. I'm seeing way more <laughs> advantage from doing that well versus focusing on competition. Right? I am, and, and I think he's exactly right. I mean, for us, you know, what we do, if I were to use the verb, is we build community. And we specifically build community between entrepreneurs, investors, and institutions to profitably solve you know, these global challenges. But what we do is build community. And in essence, you know, we're an accelerant for trust and serendipity between the yeah, unlikely individuals and ideas that would never normally collide, right? So it's completely the heart of what we do. I think what's been unexpected is you know, across across our community, there's about 600 mentors, uh, right? And those you know, folks like Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Ariana Huffington, I, I had, you know, the 
CEO of Pearson and the founder of WordPress and so on, like remarkable individuals. But there's about 250, as I mentioned, uh, unreasonable fellows. So growth stage entrepreneurs. We work with about a thousand sources of capital. That could be family offices, private equity firms, venture capital funds, sovereign wealth funds, foundations, individuals. And what we're trying to do is you know, build trust across those individuals so that business relationships happen faster, right? At, at the end of the day, yes, business is business, of course, right? Numbers matter. But I would argue that more so than anything, uh, the you know, business is people. That's what it's always been. The greatness of what we achieve is going to be through the depth of the relationships that we hold. And so what we're trying to do is the way we give entrepreneurs an unfair advantage is we give them, in essence, a kind of a white gloves concierge service, ideally to almost any boardroom they would want access to in the world, ideally to almost any funder that would be on their hit list. And then, of course, to one another, because entrepreneurs... It is a remarkably lonely journey. Uh, and there are things you can't share with your board or with your team or oftentimes with your spouse or your partner. So one of the, you know, the most profound kind of impacts that we have is actually the community that gets forged between the CEOs and one another yeah. uh, where they can drop in and just be real and just be vulnerable and ac- actually acknowledge what you said, which is like a lot of us feel like charlatans, right? You know, and it, there's no such thing as an overnight wonder. And in fact, even when you have quote unquote made it, Oftentimes it's harder, like at that level. And so, yeah, I, th- I think there's a beautiful thing where we can bring entrepreneurs together, we can drop our guard, be vulnerable, be real with each other, and then support one another on, on this journey. But it's, it's all about community at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, you know, the relationships, which you're, you're one of the things that we're, I've taught my clients for a long time is, is the power of relationship capital. Yeah. And actually, how that can be more important than financial capital because capital can come when you have the relationship capital, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and one of the things that I encourage them to do, and again, it seems like a trend. It seems like, and it sounds, Daniel, you, you see a lot of successful people. You've dealt with a lot of successful people, and successful people understand this, right? Mm. So, a lot of people, that are building businesses in the beginning are trying to shortcut a process where totally. actually they built five, 10, 15 great relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their problems will be answered in the future anyway, right? Yeah. You know, um, what's the power of that relationship capital that you've seen? You know, just like maybe an example of you, you know, doing a deal or an example of a, a something coming together, a story of where you wanted to get something done, but it couldn't get done. But then there was this relationship and just things change quickly because I often say one person, one opportunity, one chance, one meeting, one conversation can change a business, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Kelly, that's, it's, it's always a hard question because it's, it's like everyday occurrence. <laughs> oh, and, and, yeah, everyday and, occurrence. Awesome. <laughs> nice. Yeah. You know, you know, in a sense. And every time that it's, you know, almost felt like things were going to break, it was relationships that saved it. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, one, one thing that I would say just kind of upfront, you, you mentioned it. You said there's no such thing as an overnight wonder. I just, you know, a quick story on that because it, yeah, it's, it's true, that. right. I, I was, a. Uh, so I was on stage at a conference that I probably shouldn't have been invited to. I am, and just the caliber of people was insane. Right? So I'm up by, on kind of a keynote panel with, with one of the founders of Pinterest. And this is when Pinterest just took off. So this must have been 2014, I think, yeah. around then. And so we you know, do this whole spiel. And at the end of it, some of the audience you know, they asked the question and they asked the founder of Pinterest, Pinterest, they said, how does it feel to be an overnight wonder? I mean, like nobody knew of Pinterest a year prior. Now the whole world was talking about it. And he grabs the mic from me and he goes, "Um, we're an 11 year overnight wonder. I want to be clear. We went bankrupt three times 
uh, and we started this business 11 years ago before you ever heard about it, right? And I think I think part of it is just important to acknowledge that if you're getting into a, a startup or being an entrepreneur, uh, it's going to be harder than you think, <laughs> right? It's just because nobody would ever do it if we actually knew how hard it was truly going to be. And at least what I found for myself is that the thing that's gotten me through the really hard times are relationships. I am. You know, I, re- I remember a point in time where this was a pilot to unreasonable, but I'm, I'm still a university student and somebody I had, I, you know, worked with as a partner on, on this pilot program, um, came back with a letter of intent to sue, I, myself and, and my co-founder. And th- this was a nonprofit organization as well that we were running and we were, um, students. And so we were flabbergasted, right? <laughs> in a sense, we were like, what? This is a nonprofit. We're just trying to do good in the world. Somebody's trying to sue us. It's all about, you know, I think oftentimes when there isn't equity, there's if no one's never tried to sue you, then you probably haven't made it. Well, then you probably haven't made it, right? But this is the important thing, which yeah. is, or, 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 yeah, I mean, you're gonna, like, it's inevitable. And, and obviously try to avoid it. But when you're trying to, you know, will yeah, yeah. something exist that hasn't existed before, and especially when you're early on and it's going to be tough. And so, so we get that letter. We actually, we, we were scared. We thought that meant we were getting sued. It didn't. It meant there was a letter of intent, but we were young and didn't know. And uh, I kind of slipped into episodic um, depression. You know, I, I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping for a couple of weeks. And, um, but I'm still a student. And so the dean of the entrepreneurship school, he was a good friend. He's an entrepreneur. Paul Jurdy called me into his office to catch up. And this is just when a relationship picked me up, right? And so I come into his office. I look horrible. He looks at me and he goes, wow, you really look like shit. And I was like, okay, thanks, Paul. <laughs> you know, I'm a student. Like, great. Anyways, I, and I, um, he asked me, so, you know, what's going on? I said, you know, it was a woe me story. I was, I was playing the victim. You know, we put everything we could into this. We're just trying to do good in the world. We're young students and now somebody's trying to sue us and we're going to lose it. And he looked at me and he said, I'm looking at the luckiest guy I've seen in months. And I was like, Paul, did you not hear anything I said? And he said, yeah, no, I heard everything you said. And he goes, let me be clear. You haven't failed. Failure is only failure if you don't start or if you stop. Like, so get out of my office and do it again better. And he goes, and by the way, realize that you need to have contracts with partners. <laughs> he was like, that was the whole problem, right? With this yeah. is we on the same page on paper. Paul's definition of failure, I believe that failure is only failure if you don't start, if you stop, or if you do something against your, your ethical fiber, right? Everything else is necessary to achieve anything worth caring about in the world. And so, you know, for me, there's a lot of examples of where um, just individual conversations kind of gave me the energy and boost I needed to, you know, continue down a decade journey uh, to kind of get to where we are today. Cause that was back in 2008. Right. And I very easily could have a reasonable one not exist. I believe had I not had that conversation, I would have just focused on, on my other companies. Almost every, you know, of that $5 billion of capital that's been raised by unreasonable companies. Most of that happens through relationships is the honest truth. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Right. And if, you, if they know you, and this is the thing, there's a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners who want to raise money, right? We're going to talk about investment and funding quite a bit yeah. tonight, I imagine, right? Every single one of those fundraising opportunities, people invest typically in people. people. You know, they, look, they look at the vehicle, they look at the, the profit of the business, they look at the numbers, 
but you know, they're not going to invest in somebody that they don't feel that they can trust. And I think that that's a massive, massive part of it, isn't it? So I imagine that happens all the time. So when you're building this business and you're now, as you said, you've done 5.2 billion pounds worth of um, investments, right? That's what you've been involved in. And the companies that you've arranged investment for have done 3.2 billion in revenues, yeah, in sales. How did we go from being a college student, okay, uh, studying philosophy, being a bit confused about where you fit, how are you going to grow the business? How did we go from that to then doing our first deal? Because some people might be on their first deal. Yeah, yeah. Where did that first deal come from or the first kind of uh, transactions? or the, How did the wheels get in motion for this business? I think that's really interesting. Good, good point. Interesting. And one thing to clarify, if it, you know, folks who are listening, um, I haven't raised the, the $5.2 billion. You know, that, that's been, been the, the fellows we support. Obviously, we've channeled a lot of that capital, though, um, into yeah. them. Um, but, you know, actually, your analogy is how to get the wheels spinning. I am, when I think about entrepreneurship, one of our mentors uses a great analogy. He says, it's like riding a bike. And he goes, let me be clear. You can't learn how to ride a bike by reading about it or by talking about it. You need to get off the damn thing, pedal, fall over, get back up, pedal, fall over, get back up and ride. Right. And, and it is a beautiful analogy because a lot, a lot of people ask me, how do you start? And I know it sounds facetious, but the, the truth is you just start. And then, and then you expect that you will fall over. And once again, failure is not failure um, so long as you don't stop, right? Uh, and those are just lessons learned along the way. So, you know, Unreasonable, right, was born out of the ashes of this kind of failed nonprofit experiment where somebody tried to sue us. Uh, we closed that down, right? I then launched the Unreasonable Institute and out of Unreasonable Institute became Unreasonable Group. When we started out, we had a a challenge. We, we, we didn't have credibility to have any major partnerships like the ones that we have today, right? And so well, we did it. And we'll have that challenge, you know, absolutely. Totally yeah. right. So yeah, we didn't have a relationship with Barclays or Accenture or Pearson or Johnson & Johnson or Nike or whoever it was. And, uh, and I felt like it would just take too much time and we didn't have the credibility to get those partnerships up front. So to generate revenue, we needed to um, come up with something creative. Uh, we wanted to, our first program, 2010 for the Unreasonable Institute, I think we had 22 entrepreneurs from 17 countries come out to Colorado for a long period of time, for 10 weeks. And with them, we were looking at launching new companies. So this was earlier manifestation. We were working with earlier stage businesses. We needed to cover our costs, right? And so sponsorship wasn't going to be the way we were going to do it. And we refused to charge the entrepreneurs. It just went against our belief that we wanted to be the most entrepreneur-centric organization in the world. And so uh, how we did it is we, we built a crowdfunding platform. We you know pieced together a bunch of code. And we said, you know, we had about 1,000 entrepreneurs apply. We said, yeah, out of these, here's the top 50. And we're going to put your entrepreneurial medal to the test. The first, I think it was 20, 22 in the end, 22 entrepreneurs who raise you know, the, the cost of attending this through crowdfunding, you know, we'll welcome you into the program. And, uh, you know, that was at the same time when uh, Kickstarter was just started. And so I actually, I went out to New York and Perry, who's the founder of Kickstarter, met with him and we sat down and, you know, I was telling him all about this. He's talking about Kickstarter and he was like, you know, maybe you should turn that into a business. It's like, no, nah, I don't think it's going to be that big of a business. <laughs> Little did I know, but that's how we did it. Right. We just, patched together some code. The website crashed a bunch of times, but in the end, we had a couple thousand people finance the ability for entrepreneurs to come into the program and that covered our revenue. And so, you know, and by the way, we, don't, we weren't paying ourselves anything, right? You know, I think at that stage of a company, you, you are eating, you know, a top ramen or equivalent, 
right? For um, <laughs> your, your nutritional intake, I probably spend a couple bucks a day on food kind of to survive. But I'd also say at that stage in a startup, like if you're on to the right thing, the energy of yeah. what you're building is palpable and you, you can, you can live off of that or at least for a little while. Right. I, yeah. I, so, so we just scrapped it together. We had no permission. We had no credibility other than I, you know, a strong desire to create this community of entrepreneurs because it didn't exist anywhere. I think that the first bigger opportunities, you know, our model now, right? We still don't charge entrepreneurs anything. We cover all their costs. And instead we partner with major institutions. So multinational corporations or governments who they want proximity to these entrepreneurial solutions and technologies that are going to define the future of a given industry. And so our first one there, you know, the, <laughs> this is not a good story because it's like impossible to replicate. But we had we launched something called Unreasonable at Sea, and this was an experiment in transnational entrepreneurship. You had you take a mobile healthcare company in Nigeria that has an effective solution relevant to the global south and scale it cross continentally. And we we've always believed that empathy builds empires when it comes to startups, the best way to get empathy for a market is to go to market. I, the only go-to-market strategy is to go to market. And so we we actually commandeered the wing of a ship, um, sailed about 40,000 nautical uh, kilometers around the globe, I am, and took these 11 technology companies into 14 countries. Now, um, how did we pay for that? <laughs> it was a um, different thing. We had a great partnership with this uh, organization called Semester at Sea, which is an international study abroad program. They, they owned the ship. They were sailing it. That was hard because at one point, uh, Pepsi, who does a lot of great things, but they had uh, yeah, talked to me about sponsorship, about underwriting the entire thing. And I looked at it. I said, look, you know, sponsorship sponsorships like astroturf you know every everybody knows it isn't real and and it had we been running a program on the future of clean drinking water on sustainable farming practices for commodities that pepsi uses then yes we would have partnered with them but in this case it was a marketing thing and so we said um, we turned down that money but with no business model um, to supplement it and eventually what happened is we brought on three other corporations and we didn't call them sponsors they were learning partners and so they wanted to learn alongside these entrepreneurs so we had uh, nike foundation microsoft and sap and i'd say those were the first like big wins kind of to your question yeah i probably companies though and, and look there's a lot of people there's a lot of people yeah. watching that maybe don't think that big right how do you go and do a deal with not microsoft and, and nike like that's what people probably would yeah. be asking that question. How does that happen? Yeah, you know, this is a new start. I'd be really interested to hear your, you know, what you'd say on that. And we're going to jump into some other questions in a minute. But <laughs> it's curious, right? You know, like how do you go and do that deal? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Part of it is we we built something I think worth caring about, right? It was like so audacious, kind of so bold, like we hadn't seen anything like it before. That like people want to be a part of that. Like there, there, there's a certain gravitas, right, with something that I think is that exciting, right? We're going to sail around the globe with 11 technology companies killing a new international market. It's an experiment in using business as a lever for poverty relation around the world. Like there's a, there's enough there where I think it had some gravity. Just oh, did you sell that idea? From? Did you go in and sell that idea? No, I, I didn't go in and sell it. So a um, part of like being an entrepreneur, and you know this, is putting yourself out there. 
right? Yeah. I, I get in that story out like as much as humanly possible. And so I was speaking everywhere that I possibly could. And I ended up at a small innovation conference. You know, there, there may be 50 kind of chief innovation officer type folks there. And, and I gave a talk on, on the concept of a reasonable at sea and what we were building. And by the way, we had built the whole thing. We had selected the companies, we had the mentors lined up for it, and we had no way to pay for it. And this was three, <laughs> I love that. three I months love before it. we're going to set sail. And I'm maxed out on my credit cards. I'm not, you know, like, I mean, it's, it was an intense time. And I was just honest about it. I just said, look, we're, we're you know, we, we know this is a remarkably audacious experiment. Yeah. Well, and, and we framed it as an experiment, right? This is like, it's an audacious experiment, but there's no experiment more noteworthy of our time than this one. So if you want to be a part of the journey, we need you. So let's co-create this together, right? And you can learn alongside of us as learning partners. And, I, and that one talk landed Microsoft and Nike uh, wow. because the right people were in the room, right? Yeah. And, and it, was a, it was enough vulnerability. You know, I think when you are vulnerable... Was it in that moment, did you feel that actually this is my shot? Or did you not know? I think that's no, I have no idea. No, yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> I knew that one of these shots had to eventually work. And, and in my mind, there was no option of it not working, which is also, you know, that could probably backfire at some point. But I, I just felt like this experiment like had to get funded. And so to just build it and put it out there. Yeah. So that, that, was, a, that was a great, uh, that was a great conference. <laughs> in that well, sense. I think what I love, you know, about what you've just said is, like, it's, it's just even from a smaller scale, looking at a smaller scale is some of the things that we talk about. Some of the things we train people on is, is the power of finding your voice. Yeah. You know, it's like you're obviously working with some entrepreneurs on a large scale at the smaller scale yeah. as somebody that's just starting a business. Sometimes the confidence to find their voice isn't quite there yet. Yeah. So they don't have the confidence. So I'm going to go out and speak here. I'm going to go out and speak there, or I'm going to get myself out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at the start right <laughs> yeah and i think it's really interesting that you know you came up with a concept had no idea how to do it but you thought you know what if i speak to enough people yeah i will It'll find land. that person did you believe you'd find that person you thought you know yeah. what i just do this because yeah. i mean so deep. no 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 i I mean, once again, like I turned down a significant amount of sponsorship funding from Pepsi with the belief that uh, we would eventually find the right partners. And, you know, that was that was a little bit blind belief in that sense. But just to, to your comment, you know, I mean, the first hundred you know, talks I gave or even the first like one to one kind of sales meetings I'd sit in on my original startups, I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, like it gets back to this point. Like the only way you can learn how to ride a bike is by riding it. Nobody's gonna like talk you through making public speaking easier. But as you do it more and more and you realize that like it's fine. Like I know how to speak, <laughs> you know, just to have a conversation. It's okay. Right. Yeah. You eventually I at least I found I got over this irrational fear. Yeah. But I used to have, you know, heart palpitations, like all the saliva goes away in your mouth. You forget words. <laughs> I mean, like it's... I think people underestimate massively the power of speaking. They really, really yeah. underestimate it. They don't, you know, I've got a, a friend, funnily enough, from who's from the US that's a speaker, somebody that I've worked with, and he worked in finance as well. Yeah. And he built very, very successful finance brokerage, raising capital, and he did it all through public speaking. Yeah. Like, he just went out and he spoke wherever he could yeah. and he met people and he built relationships and he built a very successful business off of it. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing. It doesn't matter what you do. 
if you want to grow your business, being able to go out and speak your message yeah. is absolutely a fundamental success. So it's really great yeah. to you share that with an audience because yeah. you know, especially as you're in the billions in revenue, like in terms of generating that level, is if people want to get to the next level, if you want to get up here, you know, you don't get up here doing what you do when you're down here. If you do all this stuff down here, you stay down here. Yeah. It's what you're going to do to raise yourself up. It's going to make the difference, right? Yeah. You know, I think yeah. that's massive. Great, and, great, great lesson. Well, I'd add just one one more thing to that. You know, when it, when it was much more nerve wracking for me to give a talk, even to like five kids, right? Like it doesn't matter who it is. You would just be nervous about it. The pointer that helped me a lot was just be honest with the audience. And so I'd get up on stage when there's five people or 5,000 people. And if I was nervous, the first thing I'd say is, Hey, you know, I'm Daniel. I have a confession. I'm terrified. <laughs> like You all are intimidating as all sin. And you want me to tell my you know, life story in five minutes. I'm going to try, you know, but I just want to be upfront that I'm pretty nervous. And the moment I did that, that level of authenticity, two things happen is one is the room connects to that because who isn't nervous public speaking, right? Most all of us are. And so there's, there's some trust that's built, but also for at least me as the speaker in that situation, I was then like, great, I got it out of the way. Now I can just be yeah, myself. You don't have to pretend. Yeah. And I don't have to pretend that like I know everything and you know, and so on and so forth. And I thought that like there's strength and vulnerability and especially on public stages when it is, uh, you know, something that at least that I was really nervous about. Yeah, definitely. The more that you can be you, yeah, um, the, the easier it is because now you're just like, you know, but this is the thing. A lot of people sometimes are not comfortable with being themselves. They yeah. don't think they're enough. But the reality is if you can just go out there and be yourself, then it's going to come to you and the results are going to come. Yeah. So, yeah, we certainly found out, you know, why we created Unreasonable Group, some of the things that we did along the way. Yeah. Have you helped some British entrepreneurs with Unreasonable Group? I know you're obviously a Britain. You've got any stories about uh, British entrepreneurs that you've helped? And But uh, tell us a little bit about what you've done maybe in Britain. It'd be awesome uh, yeah. to hear about Daniel. Yeah, we, we support about 50 companies across the UK right now. So a, a big handful. We actually, our offices outside of the US are, are in London because there's just so much activity there around these really compelling entrepreneurs solving these hard challenges. So yeah, a couple companies, just some examples. People can look them up. Olio and, and their website's olioex.com. It's the number one would be categorized as kind of free sharing app in the Apple marketplace. And what they're doing is, you know, if you go out for... Chinese food and you come back home and you have some leftovers and you're not you're not gonna get to it, but it's like still okay. great food. Right? Oh, okay. Well this yeah. you did. <laughs> right? And you hadn't eaten it yet, right? Whatever that was. Olio, if you have this app, you can post that extra food on it, then your neighbors can come by and swing by and pick it up. It's in essence a food sharing and kind of household item sharing app, but it's massive. They've they've shared over um well, just shy of ten million meals. It's nine point eight million meals. Um huge uptake during COVID. A lot of children who went to schools across the UK to get free or reduced lunches no longer have that, right? And so neighborhoods are kind of coming together. They have two and a half million users on the application. It's one of the top funded female-led companies in in England uh, in the history uh, of the United Kingdom. Um, So that's Olio. Uh, River Simple is just like this killer company. So that's kind of on food waste. River Simple looking at transportation, 
Fiona and Hugo Powers, their husband and wife who started this company. And uh, uh, the husband, Hugo, was a race car driver until he just realized uh, it wasn't very good for the planet. Um, and that's just what he was doing. And so they started a hydrogen cell-powered vehicle. Um, we think it's one of the most efficient hydrogen cell-powered vehicles on the planet. It's out of Wales, gets uh, 300 kilometers to a liter of hydrogen. Uh, in the car. And what's really cool about hydrogen is the only thing that comes out of the exhaust pipe is purified hot water. Uh, and so they're, they're, you know, kind of a wacky Welsh couple and they'll literally drink tea from that just to make the point that like how clean this transportation is. And, you know, and, like we, we have an electric car and the downside to electric is, you know, charging it takes 30 minutes to eight hours, depending on how you're charging in hydrogen, you pump it just like gas. And so awesome car company, River Simple, Another company, Growing Underground, this is uh, in inland London proper, but it's actually just below London, literally. So they've taken World War II bunkers underneath the streets of London, and they've converted them into hydroponic and aeroponic farms. So they're growing you know, microgreens and salads underneath the streets of London. You can buy them in Tesco, but also then upstairs, just above them, about 33 meters. Um, they're in the restaurants you know, throughout the city, and it's just an awesome you know, case point for where farming's going. Uh, we we work with a company out, actually out of the U.S. called Aero Farms, um, and it's 390 times more efficient than traditional agriculture. So what would take, you know, one hectare of, what would take 390 hectares of land, they do in one hectare. They do it without any soil and without the need for sunlight. So Growing Underground is doing that underneath the streets of London. Just awesome company, Stephen Dray. Cool, right? That sounds yeah. awesome. Hi everybody, Adam here, and I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive Academy days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.